0: This isn't just any podcast, this is Historical Inaccuracies,
1: a history podcast. Oh, that was really good, well done. (laughs) Better than Cameron's.
0: I mean, do you think I could be James McAvoy? I could be the new Scottish-English accent (laughs) go-to?
1: I mean, I don't know if I would go that far, but that was really good. that
2: was brilliant. (laughs) That was really good.
0: (laughs) Hello, everyone. And welcome to the fourth episode of our wee podcast, brought to you once again from the wonderful confines of our universal lockdown. We are four friends, two Scots, a Greek and an English lady, and believe it or not, this isn't the set-up to a corny dad joke. Take that as you will. Uh, we love to blather about hi- all things history and on this episode we'll be discussing the first great split that happened in Christianity, which is otherwise known as the Great Schism of 1054. Now this was a showdown that made religious breakups look cool five centuries before Martin Luther was even a twinkle in his daddy's eye. We will be taking a nose dive into the drama and major beef that led to the establishment of what we now know as the Roman and Orthodox Catholic churches, with our cam taking us through a handy timeline of the major events which led up to this point in history. After we've had a wee chat about that, we'll then have Becky and Maria giving us a quick run through the main differences between the two faiths, which resulted from the schism. And we have aptly named this our wafers and sourdough segment. I'm sure everybody knows that religion is quite a mammoth topic. So after we've had a wee chat about these segments, we'll be unwinding into a more casual discussion about the schism and its repercussions. And and, and uh, in this section, the Protestant and lapsed Catholic of the group, a.k.a. me and Becky, I'm naming and shaming us, Hi, guys. Uh, we'll, get
1: to ask, <laughs> we'll
0: get to ask any pressing questions that we have, which is likely going to be a lot because we're ignorant sluts.
1: By the way, Maria, happy Easter. Happy, uh, happy Orthodox Happy Orthodox Easter. Easter.
3: Thank you so much. Yes, Thank Orthodox you very Easter. much. Thank you. To the Greek listeners, we normally say, what we say is, yes, happy Easter. And then we say, uh, Christ has resurrected. And the other person responds and says, yes, indeed, he has.
1: That, to me, that sounds a bit like something a spy would say, you know, like when you're meeting in the cafe in Paris during <laughs> World War Two, and then someone sat there with a newspaper and you go, Christ has risen, and the other person says, yes, he has. Ah, but yes, has risen, I get yeah. saying resurrected, you're right, Christ has risen, yes, indeed, yes, like a code word almost. Yeah, like yeah, a kind of, re- the, the Blue Jays sing at dawn, yes. You're in the club, in the club. The whale dives to the bottom of the ocean type thing. Neat
2: timeline timeline in terms of a timeline i've decided just to kind of focus on three major events um which essentially led up and built up to the the great schism itself so first of all 476 AD the western roman empire begins to collapse or has collapsed at that point essentially and the last roman emperor last Western Roman Emperor, I should say, excuse me, uh, Flavius Romulus Augustus um, is deposed. And what happens is the insignia and the imperial uh, throne is sent to Constantinople, um, which is the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. So essentially now there is only one single Roman Emperor, okay? the collapse of the Western Roman Empire at that particular moment in time. um, Various Germanic tribes essentially come in and take over different parts of the empire. So you had the Ostrogoths, Visigoths, um, I believe it's called the Suebi that moved into various, and the Franks as well, that moved into various kind of different parts of the, the Western Roman Empire. Now, this is quite significant because essentially what happened, Latin, although was still largely a prominent language greek really becomes i mean greek had become already at this point largely the language of the east but at this point it starts to become the the liturgical language so kind of like the language of the church and um, so when this happens um, the number of kind of like individuals who both spoke greek and latin begins to begins to kind of like dwindle it goes down and essentially communication between the East and the West becomes a lot more difficult. Along with this, this is very significant, is the the kind of cultural unity that existed between the Eastern and the Western Roman Empire. This begins to crumble. This begins to kind of fall away. So essentially what you have is almost two, well, one one empire and one former empire that essentially kind of like, I mean, they'll be kind of split, but this is really when they properly kind of split. This is when different cultures arise, different rites, uh, in terms of religious doctrines, they start kind of like appearing. And really, this is essentially uh, pretty much when the not The Great Schism wouldn't happen for another good 600 years odd, but this is the kind of like, from what I can really kind of tell, its foundations. Now, it's really interesting as well because in uh, the, Roman, the Eastern Roman Empire, the emperor was called Justinian I, and he ruled between 527 AD to 565 AD. And he establishes something very interesting called Caesaropapism. Which is essentially the idea um, that uh, the power of like a a government is also combined with the religious power, um, and essentially he makes himself um, the the spiritual authority and the secular authority as well. So he's not only the emperor, but he is also the head as of the the church as well. So by analog, so
0: he's a little, he's a little bit like an early Henry VIII then. Kind of. He
2: is yes, he is one of the major things about Caesaropapism is essentially that the emperor um, is required for the consecration of bishops um, within the empire, and this is really really significant because during the the early kind of years, well not kind of early kind of years, but the, the years of the Eastern Roman Empire, um, the the emperor is allowed to appoint bishops. And this also includes uh, the bishops uh, in Rome, um, who most of whom at this particular moment in time prior to the, the, the actual Great Schism in 1054 um, are of Greek and Syrian origin. So this begins to gradually kind of like produce resentment in the West against the Eastern Roman uh, Emperor's governance of the church. So another significant event is Pentarchy, which starts as the, the early model of the church organization. And this was championed, it was the formulation of laws by Emperor Justinian I of the Eastern Roman Empire. And essentially what this does is the, the early model of the Christian church is governed by the heads or the patriarchs of the five major episcopal sees of the Roman Empire. So they are Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch and Jerusalem. And this is really significant because all these five kind of like patriarchs and churches essentially take part in the First Council of Nicaea. Um, It's really kind of significant because the church in Constantinople, the church in Alexandria, Antioch and Jerusalem, they often largely had theological differences. And essentially the church in Rome was often a mediator in between these um, kind of like different churches to, to kind of resolve conflicts. And it seems to be that essentially by 661, with the, the arrival of kind of like Islam, uh, what had happened was is the, the Muslims, the Arabs, had taken over the territories which were traditionally assigned to the patriarchs of Alexandria, Antioch and Jerusalem which therefore basically means that there's really only kind of like two bigwigs. So you've only got the bishop in Rome and the bishop in Constantinople, the church in Constantinople and the church in Rome as well. So this this kind of really kind of creates a situation whereby the bishop in Rome essentially is kind of now saying, well, you know, I'm head of the west, whereas a bishop in constantinople is de facto head of the east so again this kind of creates a situation whereby um, the, you know the, the schisms only kind of coming more and more kind of uh, not evident at this particular moment in time but again the foundations are being laid and it's going on and it's going on so <clears throat> the next segment is going to be on uh, essentially 1053, 1054. So in 1053, a bishop by the name of Leo of Orid, uh writes a letter um, to Latin bishops, including the Pope at this particular moment in time, and he attacks Western practices such as using um, wafers instead of using sourdough. He also attacks fasting rules as well that differed from those of the church in Constantinople. And at this particular moment in time as well, the emperor of the East, uh, Serularius himself, also begins to close uh, the Latin churches, the churches that use Latin as a language in Constantinople. So in response to this, Leo IX, the pope, um, basically writes a letter addressed to Ser Eularius and Leo of Orid, in which he speaks at the length and the privileges granted to him through St. Peter to the See of Rome. And basically, he, in his letter, he speaks of the privileges granted by the emperors Quoting from the, do, the donation of Constantine document, um, which basically states that as he is the, essentially the, the Bishop of Rome, he has a bit more kind of power than, you know, essentially a lot of the other kind of bishops, etc. So, with this, this really starts to kind of schism off. And uh, what then kind of happens is the Normans, they're at this particular moment in time beginning their conquest of southern Italy. Uh, this basically constitutes a threat to the possessions of both the Byzantine Empire and the papacy. It be both kind of organisations sought the support of the, o- the other. So accordingly, what happens is they basically send letters to each other saying, nah, I'm sorry for being a dick. You know, you're actually not too bad, Tim. You can be pals and stuff like that. And uh, so basically they're kind of saying, you know, listen, I know I was a dick, you're a dick, let's be pals. That's kind of, you know, that's the kind of thing that you kind of get So essentially what kind of happens is um, the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, um, then begin the, the process of trying to help out uh, the you know some of the italian states with the norman conquest now it's quite interesting here because in january 1054 when one of the replies to the emperor and um, leo the ninth as i just said he asked for assistance against the normans however of his arrogance basically saying you know bud i need some help come on i'm getting my arse handed to me here um but you know what you are still a bit of a dick so basically, Cerularius kind of comes up and he's just kind of like, right, okay, then, well, I will try and help you, but you're still a wank. Um, however, Cerularius also puts into his letter um <clears throat> excuse me, um, the whole idea of um Pentarchy again, and he's basically kind of like reaffirming um, you know, the the different seas, Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, etc. And uh and basically he also he also kind of like puts forward essentially he's kind of saying to to Leo the Ninth Um, listen, I get you've got a lot of power and stuff like that, but basically you should still be under essentially my direction due to the idea of Pentearchy. Um, look, Alexandria, Antioch, Constantinople, bear with me, you should be under me as well. So basically at this point, um, Basically, at this point, what you then find is essentially Pope Leo dying in April 1054. And what happens is there is a bull of excommunication uh, by Cellularius and his supporters, and subsequently, there was also a papal bull as well by the, by the Roman Catholic Church. And what they do is basically they excommunicate each other. So essentially what happens is the Pope's like, well, fuck you, I'm not doing, doing what you say. And these is basically saying, well, fuck you, we're not doing what you say. Um, and basically, that was it, really. They just kind of stopped being... Friends, which is quite sad. But on a kind of more brighter note, I'd just like to kind of add this part in. Uh, in 1965, I believe, Pope uh, was it Pope Paul the sixth the seventh? Basically, him and Patriarch of the, the Greek Orthodox Church basically come together and they kind of say, you know what, we were dicks, you know, the better part of it. Then years ago, let's kind of be friends, and they then revoke the excommunications of each other. So it's not all that bad.
0: Well, thank you very much for that, Cam. Um, 900 years they'd excommunicated each other for. Like, talk that, about petty. It took 900 years to say sorry. <laughs>
2: That's right. It took nine hundred years just to kinda of come up together and be like, okay, listen, we were dicks, but you know, we can, you know, you know, let's let's be friends. We're not lovers, but let's be friends. Essentially that's what it was. you um, talk about mean girls.
1: Alright, it's like uh, it feels like it's kind of saying, I'm sorry, I can change, I'll do better. <laughs> Please love me again.
0: It was nine hundred years ago.
1: <laughs> I'm a
2: different person now. We're all different people. That that really is essentially what it is. I mean that that is what it's kind of like. I think as well though, when you look at the kind of the the Great Schism as well, it's I just kind of find it quite incredible how. The culture really affected this as well. As much as we had the kind of like differences between the churches, um, the the culture of the Eastern kind of like Roman Empire with it being predominantly Greek and the Western Roman Empire being predominantly Latin, you would kind of think that ultimately they they still had. I mean, from what I kind of gathered, they particularly up until four hundred and kind of you know twenty six AD, they still largely had the same kind of like bureaucracy, same kind of system of government. Almost there were you know regional variations etc um but i just kind of find that you know ultimately at the end of the day it just seemed quite petty that you know that they just kind of went you know what fuck you i'm not dealing with you anymore wafers and sourdough motherfucker wafers and sourdough
0: oh my god wafers and sourdough But that brings us quite neatly on to our uh, next segment, which is called Wafers and Sourdough. And in this segment, Maria and Becky will take us through the main differences and similarities between the two, both during and after the Great Schism.
3: Ladies, do you want to take it away? It is such a juicy subject. And I think the similarities, although they are like short and sweet and neat, is the big differences that cause all the friction and all the unnecessary to me, you know, sort of like not food but um sort of like um find a word for like when people are like being dicks basically without any reason what's the word for that guys petty yes pettiness so yeah a source of pettiness for between between the the i think mostly the elderly people but okay more of that later let's stick to the uh, similarities first, so, um both both churches have the same belief system and many of the same traditions. Um, although the Roman Catholic Church's beliefs are neatly contained in a single-volume document known as the Catechism, and correct me if my pronunciation is wrong, the same is not true for our Eastern Orthodox Church. Nevertheless, both adhere to decisions made by the first seven ecumenical councils, which united the leaders of the Church between 325 and 787 to agree key principles such as First of all the ability of Jesus Christ to be divine and human at the same time right which is i think amazing because it sort of gives us mortals the um kind of avenue to to go into the divine level yes Um, Second, we've got their spiritual officers uh, being categorised in the same way, so we've got deacons, priests and bishops in both uh, churches. Uh, Both churches believe in the same three bodies of the Holy Trinity, which is the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father is in heaven, the Son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth, returned to heaven, and the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, it's everywhere. Then of course, Maria, as we know her in the Virgin Mary, as she's known in the West, is held in such high esteem in both faiths. But um yeah, it's funny that to me that we say
1: Maria, um, you guys would say Mary. I had no idea that it was different. I feel really ignorant right now.
0: I remember in church, uh, well, like younger, there is some instances like because I know um, Catholic like Roman Catholic services used to be in Latin back in the day, and I've got a feeling that it was she's Maria. At some like because there's like Ave Maria and stuff. And yes, I probably know. i probably know better than I do, but I, I've got a vague recollection of their of her. She's still called Maria sometimes in the Roman.
3: So in both like. I'm not uh, sure though. Exactly. You're absolutely right, Kelly. Uh, It was in, it was Mariam uh, in the language of the time, Maria in the common Greek. Uh, It was Maria in the Latin version. And then for some reason it became Mary. (laughs) I don't know how, when this transition happened, but yeah, Maria became Mary, which is a more modern version. So, for example, in Greece, if, you know, half the population is called Maria and John, but anyway... Maria's, if you want to be a more like modern Maria, you call yourself Mary because you kind of like anglicize and westernize it. So that's a wee, yeah, perk of my country. Um, now both faiths claim to be the continuity of the early Christian faith. Both faiths have a dip and deep and rich history of theological and scholarly traditions that have been passed down from generation to the generation to the generation. We both have very elaborate ceremonies uh, and we both have sort of like quite extravagant um, let's say fashion in the way the popes and priests and bishops get dressed especially in these elaborate ceremonies and we use the same bible um we use icons in worship more of which I can I will talk about later and we also have both uh, both faiths have sacraments uh, being a fundamental part of them so that, in a gist, is are the similarities between both churches, Orthodox and Catholic. But passing on to Becky, I think, which uh, who can talk about the differences, which are the juiciest bit. I think.
1: Thank you for that, Maria. That was um, that was really interesting. Uh, and now, as Maria said, it is time for the differences. So, although the majority of the differences between the Roman Catholic faith and the Eastern Orthodox faith stem from that final schism in 1054. All of them uh, have evolved over the course of the previous few centuries. So I would like to start by talking about the ecclesiological structure of both churches. So to kind of recover some of Maria's similarities... Both the Roman Catholic faith and the Eastern Orthodox faith organised their spiritual offices into three main categories, i.e. deacons, priests and bishops. The difference between the two, however, lies in their beliefs around the successor of St. Peter. So, to give you a little bit of historical background, the Bishop of Rome was very early in Christian history given a position of power and privilege due to the city's significance within the Roman Empire. During the second millennium, the Roman Catholic Church became intensely centralised, with Rome at the centre of the Catholic world and its bishop, the supreme head of the worldwide church. The Catholic Church believes that the Pope is infallible in all of his decisions, no matter how popular or unpopular they may be. Um, And just a quick sort of factoid to the side there, um, because I find it really interesting. Uh, the Pope isn't actually the Pope's proper title. The Pope is like a, a nickname, almost. Um, the Pope's proper title, according to the Vatican website, and I did check this, is Bishop of Rome, Vicar of Jesus Christ, successor of the Prince of the Apostles, Supreme Pontiff of the Universal Church, Primate of Italy, Archbishop and metropolitan of the Roman province, sovereign of the state of the Vatican City, and servant of the servants of God, right? Imagine trying to put that on a (laughs) nameplate.
0: Otherwise known as Daenerys Stormborn, Mother of Dragons, Breaker of Chains, etc, etc.
1: Well, I mean, by contrast, the first amongst equals of the Eastern Orthodox Church has the titles the Archbishop of Constantinople, New Rome, and Ecumenical Patriarch, that's it. How many titles does one person really need? But while the Eastern Orthodox religion recognises the position of the Roman Catholic Pope, it rejects both his supremacy over the Church and the idea that the Pope's decisions on religious matters are infallible and binding for all Christians. Now, I should note that when I was researching this, quite a few of the articles I accessed noted that the Catholic religion believes that the Pope's word is binding not just on Catholics, but on all Christians. In contrast to the centralised structure of the Roman Catholic Church, the the Eastern Orthodox Church has always incorporated the independence of churches, and a number of those bigger churches form a council to decide in a democratic matter on what is best for all members. And although there is still rank amongst church leaders no one member has the same theological authority as the pope they are equals and it just so happens that the patriarch of constantinople is the first amongst equals but he has no direct jurisdiction over any other patriarch the next subject i would like to briefly gloss over uh, is religious doctrine now um i would like to talk for just a moment about the nicene creed now the nicene creed was a statement of faith which was agreed upon at the First Council of Nicaea in 325, and was finalised at the Third Ecumenical Council in Ephesus in 431. Now the wording of the Nicene Creed is as follows. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, Light of light, very God, very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and in the Holy Ghost. Now, the difference of opinion here is that That was finalised at the meeting of the Third Ecumenical Council and Ephesus, and at that meeting it was decreed that no changes could be made to the creed. However, in the late 6th century, the Roman Catholic Church subsequently decided to add the words and the Son to the creed. This changes the description of the Holy Spirit too. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified. So it's adding that and the Son to it. This is important because Roman Catholics and Orthodox Catholics disagree on the nature of the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son, i.e. God and Jesus. Now, Roman Catholics believe that the Holy Spirit comes from both the Father and the Son in the Holy Trinity, They believe that the inclusion of the Phililoquy and the Son to be a true representation of the Holy Spirit's nature. Orthodox Catholics, on the other hand, believe that the Holy Spirit only comes from the Father and not from the Son, and therefore they reject the insertion outright, as the original text does not include and the Son. They believe that its inclusion fundamentally changes the nature of the relationships between the Holy Trinity. So, um, the third subject I would like to touch on is the role of the Virgin Mary within both of these religions. Now, Catholics believe in the Immaculate Conception and the idea that Mary was free from the stain of the original sin. Now, for those of you who don't remember or don't know, the the sin or the original sin should i say stems from adam and eve's rebellion in eden um namely this them having consumed the the apple apple uh from the the fancy tree in the garden of eden um and this apparently was the original sin and therefore we all now carry this um in contrast to this the orthodox religion doesn't believe in that original sin and they fully reject the idea of the Immaculate Conception. This removes the need for Mary to be sinless to begin with. Now, what I really like about this is Mary is venerated as the Theotokos, which is Greek for God-bearer. And I love that. What a title. You know, bugger vicar of, of Dibley, Rome, sod off with your primate of primates. God-bearer is absolutely the title for me. Um, And of course, we can't talk about God bearers without then going on to talk about the role of Jesus within these churches. Um, Now, and and I will remind listeners that I am doing this very quickly because, you know, there's only so much time in the world. Um, The Roman Catholic Church believes in the divinity of Christ, but they put the emphasis on his humanity especially when depicting Jesus in art um, and they make realistic crucifixes. And I think anyone that's ever been into a church has seen the big crucifixes, usually with Jesus having long flowing locks and a six pack. Whereas um, the Orthodox church is much more theoretical. Um, and yes, they believe in the humanity of Christ and they um They focus on his divinity, though, um, and their iconography tends to be much more mysterious. Um, So actually, let's move on to iconography. Um, These differences, the differences in the views of Jesus can more easily be seen through iconography. So in Roman Catholic iconography, religious art is supposedly dominated by realism and anthropomorphism. the Catholic Church has a tendency to use statues to represent saints. And, and actually, in general, in the West, I, I would suggest there's this tendency for um, pictures, paintings of Christ to be um, like almost backlit. Um, when When I went to the Sistine Chapel, the first hour that we were there, I was wandering around going, God, I mean, look at all this. It's so, I mean, you know, all these pictures of Jesus and he's surrounded by, you know, backlit with gold light and surrounded by cherubs and adoring followers, fans, whatever you want to call it, um... And it's really quite wonderful and beautiful. And then the next three hours of sort of dragging my feet, thinking, oh God, if I see one more statue or one more picture of Jesus on a cross or or anything like that, I think I might actually just cry. In contrast to this, the Orthodox Church has a rich um, pictorial tradition um, as well, but because for the Orthodox, salvation is achieved by Christ's triumph over death in the resurrection. So it's a slightly different take. So the Roman Catholic Church, that I could see, or well, perhaps even really, much of Western art tends to focus on the death of Jesus, whereas the Orthodox Church seems to be a little bit more positive. Um, and for that, for their, for those people, for those worshippers. The salvation is achieved by Christ's triumph over death in the resurrection. As a result, Greek art doesn't fixate on the figure of the bleeding, crucified Christ with his six-pack and his long-flowing locks. The main theme for Eastern Orthodox art is to transform everything into the spiritual realm. um, And everything around it has to be sanctified. So um, the icon focuses on the figure and everything that is not the figure, i.e. the trees, the mountains, buildings, tiny children running around, uh, sheep um, eating grass, um, must be removed from the painting. Now, I'm going to talk about that a bit later, I think, in the discussion, so I'm not going to go too much more into it now, um, but hopefully that gives uh, listeners a bit more of an idea about the iconographic um, disparities between the two religions. Now... We've spent a little while talking about these bigger picture items, so I just want to quickly zip through a few more because I really do find this so interesting, and so please bear with me. Um, I promise to do this as quickly as I can. So, clergy. To start with clergy, famously, members of the clergy within the Roman Catholic Church must be men and are not allowed to be married. Priests are required to remain single and to abstain from sexual relations. On the other hand the Orthodox Church are much more loose in this um, and priests and deacons can marry before ordination. Can I think you have a point here?
2: Thank you very much, I do indeed. So there are certain churches that are in accordance with the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church and I believe one of them is called the Eastern Syriac uh, Catholic Church and as far as I'm aware some of these kind of smaller churches as much as they're not like kind of like Roman Catholic whole, they still have their own kind of like patriarchs, and their own kind of bishops, um, but they are still in accordance with the Holy See in Rome. And some of these smaller churches, they actually do allow priests to be ordained and to be married. But again, I think they would have to be married before they're ordained. And interestingly enough, if I remember correctly, I think there was something quite recently, or maybe perhaps a year ago, about Anglican priests to say that if they are already married and they want to kind of switch from Anglicanism to Roman Catholicism, I think they're still allowed to be married.
1: Oh. I, th- I think
0: um, can I thought that deacons could be married, like Roman Catholic deacons, but I could I could be to- I'm likely totally you know
2: that, what. I'm, if I'm being actually perfectly honest, Kelly, I'm not entirely sure. I think it does kind of ring a bell if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, it's not something that I've heard of. The only one that I really kind of heard of was like Anglican priests, etc. But if that is the case, that would actually be quite interesting.
0: Oh, yeah, do a drum roll? So, yeah, I, th- I think, well, according to Google, um, which is, as we all, all know, the Church of All Knowledge, no pun intended. Um, permanent deacons are men ordained in an office in the Catholic Church who normally have no intention or desire or, of becoming priests. He can be single or married. If the latter, he must be married before being ordained
1: a deacon. Well, that's interesting.
0: I so there you go, priests said... can get a bit of pussy. Yeah, but exactly because this is very is... <laughs> sexist,
3: by the way. They might not want Pussy. They might want something else.
2: So yes, let's well, exactly, put it out
0: Exactly. Thank yes. you. Representation. Sorry,
2: sorry. I... Just same. Just same.
0: <laughs> I remember someone that the only reason it struck with me is I remember I think that someone that maybe not in my school, but somebody's dad was a deacon and used to like sometimes do communion and stuff, and that's why I was like, mm, I'm pretty sure like they can be married like. Um yeah so sorry that's why that's why that just came into my head.
1: Okay well thank you very much for that. Next up bringing customs. Most Catholics tend to kneel during prayers whereas orthodox worshippers tend to stand during their prayers. Now I have to say as someone who has torn both her ACL ligaments um the orthodox religion gets my vote here because even if I kneel down on that floor, my knees will not be able to carry my fat ass back off the floor. So, you know, mon to the Orthodox religion. Next up, marriage. Now, for those following the Roman Catholic faith, marriage is seen as an unbreakable contract between a man and a woman and with God and the Church. Remarriage after divorce is not permitted unless there is an annulment, which I guess leaves a lot of people in a rather sticky wicket because. My understanding of an annulment in the Roman Catholic sense is um, that it nullifies the previous marriage. So any children, for example, will then become illegitimate, which I was thinking about. And I think that leaves a lot of people in a rather sticky wicket because an annulment is saying that the, the marriage beforehand and any children are not like they're not almost like they're not valid. And I have a real issue with that. Um
0: well that's so, what Henry VIII wanted to do to Catherine of Aragon.
1: Well I mean um, I'm not saying that was right or wrong, you know, but I just that that to me that's very troublesome. However, for those who follow the Eastern Orthodox faith, marriage is a mystical union between a man and a woman. Divorce is generally granted in case of adultery, though there can be other exceptions. I mean this sounds very dated, like the
3: this is what, yeah, anyone gets worse these days.
1: Mm, yes. Thank God. Thank God. I'm sure your future husband will be very happy to hear you say that. <laughs> um, so, the next thing I want to talk about is purgatory, because I find this very interesting. Um, for Roman Catholics, there is a belief in an intermediate state between heaven and hell, and it's a place where people can atone for any sins they may not have repented at the time of their death whereas for orthodox catholics the existence of an intermediate state between heaven and hell is recognized but the cleansing of one's sins can only be done during this life and not the next so if you're not a good boy or girl or non-binary individual in this life then you're pretty much fucked. the thing the, my problem with that is right we sin on a daily basis if just in general terms of you know, like either you're blaspheming or or you're coveting your neighbor's ass or, or whatever, um, and how? But how do you how do you know all of the sins that you've ever done, and how can you atone for them before you die? I would literally have to start now, and I would still not be done by the time I die.
2: Confession.
0: I was going to say that,
2: but that doesn't work if you're not Catholic. Well. What you can do right And this is just my kind of reasoning behind it Just build up a shit ton of sin Go to the chapel And then just say right Father get comfortable Here we fucking go And then just rattle <laughs> off <laughs> And then and then, no no Listen there's a reason behind it And then he'll probably say Listen here's what you're going to do Three Our Fathers Three Hail Marys One Hail Mary. three <laughs> Warriors, On you go Yeah, There you go bugger off
0: but well, greek um so i think basically as the thing it goes is that if you need to get any of the sacraments you have to be they have to be a catholic but when i was looking this whole thing up last night and this was like really the most interesting thing to me so if you're orthodox and if you're like or vice versa so like see say if you were orthodox and you couldn't get access to an orthodox priest you can receive three sacraments from a cat from a roman catholic priest and vice versa so uh, um an orthodox um follower c- could get confession so they could go to a catholic priest and the catholic priest would give them would do confession for them and they can also get um communion so they could also go and get communion from a catholic priest and they could also get the anointing of the sick which is one of the other sacraments and it's the same for like if a roman catholic couldn't get access to uh a, a roman catholic priest that could go in orthodox church and get the three of those things so that's good to know you know if you've not i mean tough if you're like an anglican or like you know something that isn't orthodox but if you did want to have to get um to get a catholic um confession or anything like that administered to you then they they basically like help each other out in that regard which i didn't know about fun fact
1: okay i didn't know that either so thank you very much in terms of the Eucharist, and why we've kind of named this segment uh, wafers and, and waffles or whatever it was. Um, the Roman Catholic faith, people in the Roman Catholic faith, um, it uses unleavened bread, as was used by Jesus at the Last Supper. Can um, I just
0: say on that though? Yes, please. Right? When, see when that stuff sticks to the roof of your mouth. And you have to stand there and try not put your finger in your mouth to peel it off at the roof of your mouth. It's one of the most, I'm not, like, yeah, that was a lot as a child.
1: Okay, thank you. Um,
0: because you've got the guilt of not wanting to put your hand in your mouth during mass. Yeah, anyway, sorry, that's a little bit of childhood trauma coming out.
1: And how does that make you feel, Kelly? Um,
0: well, I'm just going to take that with my therapist. <laughs>
1: Um, so, um, in the Roman Catholic Church, unleavened bread is used during Mass, as was used by Jesus at the Last Supper. Um, it is—I can't remember what the exact phrase is—the um, the the bread and the wine used in Mass is Jesus's body and blood, which I think is really creepy but that's by the by. Yeah, Um,
0: transubstantiation.
1: Thank you. Transubstantiation, yes. However, um, in the Orthodox faith, they in fact used leaven bread, which comes with yeast in their liturgy to symbolise the risen Christ. So yeast makes the bread rise.
0: What does it look like then, Maria, if it's risen? Is it still like small bread?
1: It's not flat. So it's like
3: literally a piece of bread. Like a piece of bread but it's a bit bulky, let's say. But mm. probably easier to digest. Therefore I
0: bet it doesn't get stuck quite tasty it actually. Stuck to the roof of your
3: mouth. <laughs> it's like a, almost like a crumbly taste. It's quite quite tasty actually. Oh. And
1: Maria, am I right in thinking that in the Orthodox faith it's not that the it's not transubstantiation, so it's not the bread. Uh, the body and the blood of Christ, but it symbolizes the bread and the body of Christ. Am I getting that right? Yes, yes, okay, yes, right. So there's another difference that we seem to have discovered is that, oh, I have anyway, sorry, I shouldn't say we because you guys obviously know, but I have discovered is that there's one where it is and it's, there is one where it's a simile and one where it is not a simile. Thank you, and you'll be all glad to know that that concludes my segment, and we can now move on to something much more interesting. Discussion. Discussion. Ta-da.
0: Thank you, Becky. This will just be essentially—I mean, a quick just uh, us asking our stupid uh, like bimble questions now. If you're happy to like just
1: you know take it away. Okay, so can I can I go back to? Um, can I go back to the philoquy? The philography. The, the, thank you. That one. Um, and this whole and the sun thing, right? Now, uh-huh. please can you explain that to me? Because what the fuck, lads? I mean, really? You know, it, 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 it feels like people are throwing their toys out of their pram for absolutely no reason.
2: I've got to agree with you becky on that one as well actually i didn't actually know that that was one of the theological kind of sticking points like genuinely i didn't have a fucking clue um but if, if that is just that one reason i think okay right just to kind of go back i think basically from what i've kind of gathered is when you have a council of nicaea right the, the very kind of first one it was like this is doctrine, this is what's happening. If anything else happens, then it's just pure pish, basically. Like like I I kinda get that impression, right? And then I think when the the kind of Roman Catholic Church comes along and they say, Well actually we're going to add this bit in, I kind of get the impression that the Orthodox kind of church was a bit like, Really? Do you have to add it in? Can we not just stick with what we've got? And then the Catholic Church like, nah, you know, this is quite cool, you know, We'll add it in basically, you know, it, it means more to us. And then I think, you know, both sides were like, well, actually you're fucking right, you're fucking wrong, and that's kind of basically it. That's a very kind of condensed version. I think there's probably more to it, but that's kind of my opinion.
1: Thank you. Um, I I mean, don't get me wrong, okay, I I get the idea that it that people some people feel that it changes the nature of the relationships between the Holy Trinity. So there's another thing I didn't get, because we're talking about the divinity of Christ. In the Catholic faith, Jesus is human and is the son of God, but can also be divine. Whereas, there's something to do with wording, whereas in the Orthodox faith, Jesus is both human and divine at the same time. And it's almost like a demigod, kind of like a Hercules type thing. Exactly. Okay.
3: That's the sort of thing. Again, it stems from the belief that humans, again, by exercising kindness and exercising love and the words of Jesus, not the human part that was added on. Centuries, but if you if you sort of like take out the quote unquote uh, quotations actually of Jesus's words from the four gospels, you see that it's all about exercising kindness, love, being good to each other. You know, just just be a good person in general. And if you take that, that means that you can reach divinity, and hence why you should be able to, as a human, to aspire to be God and divine. But in general, because the Orthodox believe that the Father is why when the son was on earth, Jesus, the father was the proof that he was divine and because the son didn't, the son was divine because of the father, he wasn't equal to the father, hence why we reject filiography which is a very tiny pedantic sort of like almost semantic difference but It's again, again, it became viral at the time and it was added to the division between the two churches.
1: I don't know if I've confused you more right now. Maria, that's my default position. We know this. So uh, Kelly, you had some questions as well. I don't want to like keep on talking.
0: Uh, No, It was just like a little kind of technical thing. So like in terms of like, if we're going to call it like tools and stuff. So it's more like does like the Orthodox have? So obviously in Catholicism you have, or Roman Catholicism you have, uh, like rosary beads. You have the um, stations of the cross. You have like the wee swingy um, orb thing that has like incense and stuff in it. Does um, do you, does the Orthodox Church have any of that kind of like
3: the sort of accessories, if you like? Mm-hmm. We do have loads of accessories. We do have a similar thing to the, the beads uh they're not they're made out of a uh, fabric, and they have the same use as the beads that so you just attach each one of them and you say a prayer um that we wear them quite a lot because they're very trendy let's say, and um, we've got the crosses we've got the round thingy that you yeah you hold and you sort of move about that that smells amazingly as a sort of blessing we do have holy water that we have in each house and then we have many many icons that we have um in a wee place in the house and uh, normally people tend to have them in the, in their kitchens and we also have a little uh candle it's called kadili uh, that is that goes along with the sort of icons and the pictures we have and if you don't mind me can i can i talk about the pictures a wee bit yeah, of course. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, as Becky explained, we sort of, again, in order to be able to uh, sort of like connect with a divine which is out of reach but attainable, hence why our, we've got two-dimensional depictions of the Christ and the Apostles. Absolut- they're not pretty to look at, but the point is that it's something above us that we have and we aim to reach and become that's why it cannot be anthropomorphic but if you all want to find something you know something interesting that i, I think is quite um good to know uh, the first or the, the most uh, iconic Icon of Jesus is the one of Jesus Pantocrator, which literally means the ruler, ruler of all. And it dates back to the sixth century in St. Canthus Monastery in Egypt. And it's one of the most important icons and it, Christ in this one is presented as in the act of blessing with his right hand while holding a a gospel book in his left. And it's the oldest known panel icon to depict Christ. And it's the two faces of Christ. So it's Jesus Christ, Pantocrator. And it's it's quite, again, quite uh, close to the... uh, Byzantine sort of like a style it's simple the colors are clear um, the, the most singular aspect of the work is that the two halves of Christ's face express different emotions on the side on which he holds the gospel his features are quite hard and you can see that representing Christ as a judge who sees all while the expression on the uh, other side it's with the blessing hand is calm and serene representing him as a as a savior of all uh, and it's, it really does express the, the central reality of the Christian faith that um, the divine majesty of the God, the creator and ruler of all the world made flesh and therefore visible to us in the person of Christ, our redeemer. I hope that was not very ecclesiastical. But if you just Google the picture, it's you can see the very different sides of his face and how basically it epitomises the the two the sides, the, the God and the human and the judge and the redeemer. So there you go. Thank you very much. That's very interesting. It's a, it's a creepy, a creepy. It's not creepy, but it's a very, very weird picture to look at, like it makes you feel uneasy. So do Google it, please. And tell me how you feel. It's not oh, my I've
0: just Googled it I've just Googled it now and I get I get that. <laughs> yes. It's like, I feel
3: like... It's funny.
1: Judging you. I feel like
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, okay. it's a bit oh.
1: it's like <laughs> feels like... I'm a bit on edge. Feels like my mind is being red right now. I mean I... I've had
3: nightmares is about this
1: picture.
2: <laughs> <laughs> is it just me or is like one of his eyes squint? Sorry, can I just go back to one of the the whole icon thing? One of the things that I've been kind of reading about is, uh, Kelly, I think, you know, you'll be with me on this one as well, um, is the fact that icons in the Roman Catholic Church are prayed to, but icons in the Orthodox churches aren't necessarily prayed to. Is that correct? Um, um, I mean, we we do...
3: Do you know what? I thought, I'm not sure actually, because when we go in the church, right? We The first thing you do is you do your cross, which again is, I think one of the differences is that we have, we use, uh, I think we use two, three fingers. You, you, you use two fingers to cross, to do the Holy Cross. And then we cross and then we light a candle and then we kiss them, the pictures. There's plenty of them. Normally you find Jesus, Mary, Maria, uh, John the Baptist, and some, um, Depictions of like the the Mary being, you know, the, the the death of Mary, the crucifixion of Jesus, and then we pray on them. And many times we leave, uh, like maybe uh as a sort of like token, we say, okay, I'm giving you this ring, please do this to me, or I'm giving you this bracelet, please God do this to me. Um, and we, then we do pray that we do have copies of these icons in our houses. The wee kitchen space, and we pray on them. So we do pray on them, sort of. So
0: it's like, is it kind of like the saints in that there's a different one for each thing? Like, obviously, you get like different patron saints. Like in the um, Roman uh, Catholic uh, f- tradition, you get like saints for different things that you got the patron saint of lost souls and all of that kind of stuff. So is it kind of like that? Like, is there different icons for like different needs, or are they all kind of.
3: Sort of, you know, yeah. Um you can choose your own, like you can, you know, you can pray to Maria uh for anything and Jesus for anything. But for example, you know, um Saint Nicola Nicholas, he's the saint of the navy, you know, and I think we do have similarities in that sort of aspect. You know, St. George with the dragon. There's there's the similarities in what specific saints do. They Let's just say they have their their area of expertise where they perform miracles. And we also pray to the archangel Michael and Gabriel as well. And we have whole like churches devoted to them and they are very known to perform miracles. Some icons, they're very famous for that. Uh, yeah, we, we are very good with the... With the let's say the not paraphernalia, but you know the trade trademark our products very well in the Orthodox Church.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like the um, like the Saint Christopher, um, like uh, net travelers, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I think yeah, I think he is. Yeah, he's a prote- yeah, yeah protector of travelers. Um and. I remember I didn't have one. I got one when I went to Rome when I was at school. And uh, and I think it became kind of trendy at one point to sort of wear the little sort of medallion. I think I've still got it somewhere. But um, but yeah, it's quite uh, interesting that there's loads of different
1: ways that you can... Loads of different saints for different things. See, Maria, how you mentioned St George. I've just realised that it's four days until it's St George's Day.
0: What is he the saint of? Apart from like being the English patron saint, is he like, actually like a saint for...
1: Yeah, so he,
0: yeah.
1: he was actually Greek in theory. Uh supposedly. Um and he was um he was a guard, wasn't he, for a Roman Emperor. I can't remember which Roman Emperor it was. Um and he was sentenced to death because he refused to recant his is that the word? Recant his faith. And um yeah, he's um viewed as amongst other things a military saint and he's got his dragon slaying myth and and everything um but it's not just it's georgia as well he's the patron saint of georgia so it's not just england
0: it's like um saint andrew so i've literally just looked up saint andrew like the patron saint of scotland and he's mm-hmm. also the patron saint of greece and russia and italy and barbados um, and it says that he's apparently the patron saint of singers, spinsters, maidens, fishmongers, fishermen, women wanting to be mothers, gout and sore throats.
1: Those are some very, very <laughs> select things. Do you know
0: what? St Andrew's a
1: very versatile man. He is. He spreads himself about a bit.
0: My, oh. uh, my grander used to have a, a St Patrick because that was his favourite saint. So he used to have a little uh, St Patrick statue on like, the top of his cabinet.
3: Do you know what's really interesting that like you said? that like, he was um, the saint patron of Greece and Scotland. Our flags are quite similar, uh, both with a sort of like cross, both with a, um, bl- a blue and white. So there you go.
0: Yeah, I wonder if that's where the origins kind of came from.
3: Maybe it could be. Might make in a thumbs, but it could be.
0: Does anyone have any other um, pressing questions, or can I go into my uh, my famous quiz, which is not so famous? no I, th- I think i'm 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 good thanks um okay well now we will go on to the the quiz section and there's only five questions um, and we should have talked about most of them well actually there's one that we've not talked about so that can be a little wild card in there um but there's five questions so i will start now so and it'll just be a case of like whoever's the first person to come in gets it and yeah if you just keep a keep a keep a score of of um, the ones that you get right Mm, bad luck Cam. question (laughs) question number one on what date did pope leo the ninth die 19th of april i don't know what year 1054
1: 1054. (laughs) i'll
0: I'll give you both that because you kind of got half right
1: half. thanks
0: Uh, (laughs) and question number two What were the main languages that were spoken in the east and west halves of the... Latin and Greek. Greek,
1: Greek, 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 Latin.
0: That's one to you, Becky. Uh, Question number three. Which sacraments do both the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches allow to be administered to members
3: of the opposing faith if required? Uh, Holy Communion, uh, to confess, and the bread. No, uh, there was two that was right
0: there. Yes, oh, yeah. um, the third one. So you can share that point as well. Thank
2: you.
0: Uh, question number four. And now this is just... Um, I'm, not, I'm going to really refrain from saying the song here. But um, modern-day Istanbul has had many names, including Byzantium Constantinople. Constantinople,
1: Constantinople,
3: Constantinople. That's not the full cool <coughs>
0: question, though. <laughs> so modern-day Istanbul has had uh, several names, including Byzantium and in Constantinople, which was named by Emperor Constantine in 330 AD. However, what name did he initially give the capital, before Constantinople.
2: Oh, I've got we no idea.
0: This, so, yeah.
2: Nova Roma?
0: <laughs> yeah, Cam! That's right.
2: Did you just Google it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> did you Google it?
2: Oh, I didn't did you know, know. Did you know I that? didn't Google it. I knew that, Maria. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah,
3: we really you I knew that, yeah. Why is
2: everyone so surprised and not thick?
3: <laughs>
0: I mean, I'm just do it. Okay. <laughs> uh, and the fifth and final question, what was the name of the Creed whose amendment caused one of the Nicene I seen Creed! Oh my Yay. god. There
3: you go. <laughs> I see an, I see an, I so see.
2: Don't know,
0: <laughs> I don't know who got like the highest amount of points there. Was it you, Becky? How many did you get?
1: I wasn't counting. I think about three. Mm, you weren't counting.
0: <laughs> well, we'll just we'll just say like that everyone's a winner in this
1: context. Oh, thank gotcha. you.
0: <laughs> so yes, um, I think that just just about sums up our little our little chat. If, if you want to call it that about, um, about the great schism um, thank you everyone for joining us today and we'll see you next time bye everyone
1: bye everyone bye bye bye